I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. It was Friday, April 25, 1997, and Australia and New Zealand ran onto the Sydney Football Stadium for a one-off test match. It was the first international match to be officially called the Anzac Day Test and the first full international contest for the Australian Super League team. Living in the shadow of the World Cup success of the Australian ARL team two years earlier, the Rebels had much to prove. In the end, Australia won easily, but while the rest of the season proved there was still plenty of life in International Rugby League, the question remained as to whether anybody still cared. This is part two of Two Tones, the 35th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? I'm wonderful, mate. Uh, really had a good time last week on our comeback episode for this stanza. I've really enjoyed the research for this chapter. As I said in part one, I think it says a lot about the Super League story as a whole. I want to put this to you at, at the start. To me, it seems like a fairly bleak period for International Rugby League. Would you agree with that assessment? One of the coldest winters. <laughs> <laughs> but I think amidst the missteps and cynical ploys that both sides employed, which we're going to discuss in this episode, as well as what you've heard us talk about for the last however many years, I think there are a few positives to take out of this period of International Rugby League and maybe some of the foundations for the strides that we've made in the decades since. Yeah, I think definitely the Oceana part of it is a real positive. Yeah, so with the Super League vision, you can see a lot of what we want to be reality. But I don't want to oversell that, though. So we're basically going to start at the end with a verdict on how Super League's international vision squared with its reality. With the caveat, as I've said before, it's in some ways unfair to judge them on their international track record when they got such a short period to get it together. If they'd have stayed separate or if the ARL had folded, we may have a different outcome, but we can only judge on what happened. And not much of that is good. You had the Tri-Series failure, as we talked about last week. You had the World Club Challenge debacle, as we will talk about in the next chapter. You had expansion in England, in London and Paris, Neither, well, you know, London Broncos are back, but it's been a long road to get back. (laughs) Via Harlequins. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Paris are gone, and we're going to talk about that in our next chapter, but in a very farcical manner. You had the Nines being sold as this great new promise for emerging nations and International Rugby League, giving up on the Fiji experiment after a year, going back to Townsville, dropping a number of teams. Basically, not a lot went right. We talked about the disastrous Great Britain tour of New Zealand in 1996. So in 1997, Super League had a lot to prove when it came to international football. 
And you mentioned it at the top, but the Oceania Cup is probably the best example of Super League promising something that was actually achievable. It wasn't Laurie Daly's going to be on a poster in Beijing alongside Michael Jordan. It was, we've got this great emerging Pacific talent. Why can't we harness that with a tournament? And they actually did that with the Oceania Cup taking place in 1997, won by a New Zealand 13. I haven't seen the breakdown of the squads, but I'm assuming it's made up from the New Zealand domestic competition and then teams from across the Pacific. That's one of the lasting legacies of Super League, I think, is the fact that they were able to get that up and running and showed that they did have a blueprint for how International Rugby League could progress. Look, I mean, it's one of the positives. Let's try and be positive here. But, I mean, it did take Rugby League another... 20 or 30 years to get their act together after that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so it wasn't a total win. No, and then it comes with the fact that Western Samoa, one of the leading sides, actually pulled out of the tournament because they weren't happy with how they were being treated by Super League. Can't blame them. So one of the most illustrative comments about their pullout came from Norm Tasker in the bulletin who said that they complained that Super League spent more on a night's fireworks display at a Brisbane Broncos game than they had on the development they had promised in the Pacific. Which is just disgraceful. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> fireworks and me don't go hand in hand, so I'm right on board with Western <laughs> Samoa there. But, you know, think about in recent memory, the Samoa Tonga test. It's ingrained in your memory some great rugby league moments. No one's remembering the M80s that went off before the um, yeah. <laughs> Cronulla-Brisbane club game, you know? Yeah, I mean, and just think about that $100,000 per game budgeted for entertainment (laughs) when I don't know if between the emerging nations, any of them got that much in total. So we imagine like those emerging nations at that time be happy with like matching uniforms, you know, it wouldn't have been much. Yeah. So I like this quote from Morris Lindsay for a number of reasons, but you also have to take it with a grain of salt. Lindsay said, I think we can really develop the Oceania competition into something special. We now have some money in our development fund, at least. Great use of something special. Which I wonder if that came from him spending so much time around Rebo and some of the other Australian Super League figures. It just seems so ingrained in our rugby league culture. I can't imagine like a bitter northern Englishman (laughs) (laughs) using that phrase. He goes back to Hull and he's talking about uh, visions and stuff. And they're like, what is this play on about? (laughs) But beyond the Oceania Cup, a lot of the rest of the Super League international talk was the same old bullshit. So we were promised a $60 million investment into the Japanese Rugby League to set up a premier (laughs) competition there. How much money did they think they had? $60 million. Yeah, they, they can't give five hundred bucks to Western Samoa, but they can incinerate sixty million for the um, East Japan v Japan war. That was one of the conditions of the money was to sort out that blood feud between Japan and East Japan. So, uh, as we've spoken before, Max Mannix was the head of Japanese rugby league. He was also the bottom of Japanese rugby league. Like I don't think <laughs> there was much more than him. Well, I mean, I'm a um, Japanophile, and I hate that O-file suffix, but that's what they call them. And there's no way 
rugby league people are going to get over in Japan with their culture of um, hierarchy and structure. They wouldn't have a 48-man committee and power coups. They have a one-man committee and 48 layers of delegation and bureaucracy. It was never going to happen. (laughs) Uh, And that's not to mention the Japanese courts and jails being clogged up with a million (laughs) Blake Fergusons (laughs) if if there was ever any significant investment in the region. (laughs) It would have been like the the Mario boat lift in uh, Cuba to Florida. (laughs) (laughs) The amount of crime increases. (laughs) So needless to say, I don't think Max Mannix and his Japan Rugby League ever got that $60 million. They ended up pulling out of a World Cup qualifier to focus on solving the feud and getting the domestic situation sorted out. And basically, Japan Rugby League is still a far off. I would love to see Rugby League big over there, but Rugby Union is just a plaything for corporations. I mean, so what's Rugby League to them? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's far down the list of priorities for International Rugby League today. And the Great White Whale has always been and continues to be the US. Super League spoke a lot about the way they were working on getting Rugby League into the US. David Newey had set up a competition there and you know Super League magazine were talking about how exciting that was. This was a line in a Super League magazine article about Rugby League in America. Rugby league fans grow tired of hearing how the game is about to be big in America. That was 1997. We're only <laughs> 10 years on from, you know, Long Beach origin. And there'd probably been three separate American dreams sold in that intervening 10 years. We're now 25 years past that. And how many other American dreams have been sold? And are we any closer? Well, I've um, been a proud purchaser of all American dreams that have been offered (laughs) (laughs) and then been denied a refund. (laughs) And that's basically where we're still at today. So we'll move on from America. I'll stand by it. I stand by it that America is a rugby league town. It's going to be over eventually. If it's 2080, it's going to happen. It just seems to make too much sense. Like someone's got to get it right eventually. (laughs) But that wasn't to be Super League. So in the end, I think all of this illustrates that Super League talked a big game, but were rarely able to deliver. I like the fact that one of their big pitches was more money for international football and better payment for players who played in games. They lost a bunch of money on the Tri-Series, weren't getting the popular support they thought they'd get from the Australian domestic competition, and suddenly decided to halve match payments for the international tests. Halve match payments and quadruple firework payments. Yeah. (laughs) But in the midst of all this, they actually did play, and the Super League Australian team became a reality. And that started on Anzac Day. So there'd been... Matches played on Anzac Day for decades, you know, going back to, I think, the 20s and th- or 30s, there'd been matches played on Anzac Day. But what there hadn't been was an official branding. There'd always been allusions to the war and the sacrifice, but this was the first time that they actually got the RSL involved. So they got permission from the federal government and the RSL to officially call the game the Anzac Day Test. So the RSL insisted that they weren't taking sides. It was just a one-year commitment and we'd go from there. 
It seems like the rank and file, because the RSL wasn't what it is in later decades, you know, a serpentine den of misery for gambling. It was still related to veterans back then, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, you still had World War One veterans alive in 1997. The World War Two veterans were still actively controlling the RSL. So it, Yeah, so I feel like the rank and file wouldn't be happy with the support. They were not happy, as we'll get to. <laughs> so support of the RSL came at a price, with Super League donating $20,000 to the construction of the Kokoda Track Memorial Walkway in Rhodes. That's Rhodes, Sydney, for some of our non-Sydney or Australian listeners. Is that like the start of the unnecessary RSL um, building project? Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could well be. And it's funny, I've driven past that walkway a number of times and never really knew what the go was. I'd always drive past it and see Kokoda Track, isn't that in Papua New Guinea? <laughs> and twenty thousand dollars seems a remarkably cheap sell for Super League. It's a fifth of a budget for yeah, entertainment. Exactly. And that's put into perspective even more when the players were all together and heard a speech about the war and the sacrifice and what the RSL had done. Laurie Daly got so moved that he offered to donate $5,000 to the project as well. So the Super League investment of $20,000 became twenty five dollars thanks to Laurie Daly. He's a stand-up guy, isn't he, Loz? Yeah, totally. So not a lot of investment really to get that branding. But the current board of the RSL were quite happy with the proposal. Some of the rank and file and previous leaders of the RSL, not so much. So Alf Garland, who had recently stepped aside as the national president of the RSL, thought, direct quote, it was a load of garbage to compare football <laughs> to war. I'm on board with Alf there, but uh, what a great name for an RSL yeah. boss. Well, yeah, uh, Brigadier Alf Garland, give him his full title. <laughs> A lot of the rank and file felt that they hadn't been consulted. They weren't happy with it. And a lot of the distaste came from the marketing of the game with Bruce Ruxton, who was the Victorian president of the RSL, a name that's fallen out of popular culture. But he was up there with Ron Casey in the 90s as an old racist out-of-touch dinosaur. If you want to have a modern, it's all new in the vision, what are they doing with Bruce Ruxton? Yeah. <laughs> So Bruce Ruxton was brought in for the ad and gave a statement that said, Mark my words, Australia is still in grave danger from one of our so-called neighbours. The Kiwis were once our allies and now they're on the other side, at least for 80 minutes. Unnecessary. I mean, that would cause outrage now if they tried to do that, let alone in 1997 when you had the guys who actually fought alongside the Kiwis still alive. Yeah, unnecessary in my view. But um, if you're going to condemn Ruxton, for guys that love Rex Mossop, they're basically the same blokes that one could play footy. Yeah, <laughs> very true. Yeah, they're of their era. <laughs> I dare say Ruxton and Rex shared a lot of the same views. They don't want male genitalia pushed down their throat. <laughs> So with this ad and the concept in general, Roy Masters wrote a withering article in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, I'll read a direct quote. He said, Super League has turned Anzac Day into a marketing exercise. It has hijacked the Anzac spirit for $20,000, gaining the cooperation of the RSL. No marketing guru, not even a news limited one worth every centimetre of his ponytail should ever be allowed to reduce a legend <laughs> built on sacrifice to a photo opportunity. Uh. See, I share the old rugby league guys' disdain for ponytails. 
I think ponytails are to Roy Masters as male genitalia down your throat is to Rex Mosser. <laughs> it just reminds me of the fast forward um, Steve Weiser, Peter Moon advertising execs yeah, uh, yeah. S- sketches. <laughs> and finally, speaking of fast forward, that was the main thing I knew Bruce Ruxton from as a kid. There, yeah, there was a, a parody version that was Romperoom. Hilarious. Yeah. There was a touch of hypocrisy in that column, though. So this also came from it. The ARL has honoured rather than exploited the tradition. Anzac Day games have traditionally been preceded by a bugler sounding the last post in a minute's silence. There is little wrong with a test between Australia and New Zealand on Anzac Day, but nothing antagonises old diggers more than glorifying footballers by comparing them to soldiers. It's hard to not read that as when the ARL does it, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're hitching on Anzac Day for promotion, you're both doing it. Yeah. And outside of Roy Masters' article, Peter Falengos, in response to it, noted some glaring hypocrisy from Masters and the ARL. So in 1995, there was a match on Anzac Day between South and East. And to promote that on the cover of Big League that week, there was Craig Field and Adrian Lamb, both dressed in full like military gear, like the World War One slouched hats. <laughs> And in Frelingos' comment, he made the reasonable point that what Super League hasn't done is compare players to soldiers. And that is explicitly what the ARL was doing with stumps like that. So I think Frelingos and Jeff Wells came out with another, you know, pretty scathing opinion on Masters saying, this is my opinion on Masters. His attack this week, backed by his editors, on Super League's Anzac Day test was one of the most cynical exercises in naked opportunistic bias I've ever seen on a sports page. I think Falingos has a point. There's a lot of hypocrisy there. But when you get to the actual presentation of Super League, I found myself back on Master's side. So, <laughs> Well, there's ways to do things and there's ways not. <laughs> and I would argue what Super League did falls into the latter camp. So this <laughs> this was from Roy Masters' match review. For the most part, the pre-match entertainment was crass and inappropriate, giving justification to those who say Super League exploited the Anzac spirit. Bare midriff girls wearing khaki 1940s skirts with the Super League S on their blouses and dancing to the tune of Glenn Miller's <laughs> In the Mood. See, you can't knock Glenn Miller. I think the only way they could have made that more disrespectful is if it had been the Jive Bunny version. <laughs> I would have loved to see some um, nice young, um, what are they used to call them back then? Some nice young trollops uh, <laughs> doing the Charleston. I was right on the Chattanooga Choo Choo with that promo, man. Glenn Miller all the way. That just made me laugh so much, envisioning the Super League S with the khaki shorts and... <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, check out the <laughs> and, and, and check out the damsels. You know, and this joyous song that you more associate with like, you know, Victory Day at the end of World War Two than yeah. like you know, getting mowed down at Gallipoli in nineteen fifteen. So amongst all the controversy, it's I think important to note that Australia versus New Zealand Anzac Day game became a bit of a fixture over the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Not really played on Anzac Day after they brought in the St. George Illawarra Roosters game. But for the, for the next 10 or 15 years, if not every year, there'd usually be an Australian-New Zealand test match around the point of Anzac Day. 
Well, moving forward decades, you know, the Anzac jerseys now and all that sort yeah. of stuff, it's just become accepted to attach yourself and, in inverted commas, exploit the legend. Yeah, and I think that is, I don't know what the details are, but I know servicemen get in free and there's, like, you know, buckets going around. I think there's some payment to the RSL or whoever else to be able to use that branding. And they're also very careful to celebrate the service people, not make allusions to players being soldiers. And no dance routines? No dance routines. Uh, yeah, our friend Cody Dobbs always brings up one of the early Anzac Day matches with the Roosters when Freddie was still playing. He scored a try and Rab said, age shall not weary him. <laughs> oh, please. But I think for the most part they've made that separation. But why the fixture is no longer played, I think, is why the ARL were against it in the first place, which wasn't because of some idea of respect or anything like that. It was just the fact that it was out of sequence. It was always viewed that, from a New South Wales perspective at least, city country leads to state of origin, state of origin leads to internationals, which that's how it should be. Well, considering they had um, New Zealand in the comp, Auckland Warriors, they could have just had a club game celebrating in that day. Yeah, yep. Uh, but other elements of the presentation were less controversial. Part of that was to have a Legends Walk. They temporarily renamed some of the grandstands after certain legends of the game, one of those being Graham Langlands. So he had actually recently moved back from the Philippines. He'd had his old friends rallying him around to try to get him some money and get him back on his feet. One benefit was uh, launched by his old Dragons teammate, Ian Walsh, who put together a testimonial night to try to get Chang some money. Walsh was upset that Super League hadn't really contributed to it. He'd reached out and hadn't heard anything from them, although Canterbury had donated to the cause. And in the past, the ARL had helped out Langlands financially. But this is the thing. Is it just a case of him being a prick that no one liked and the fact he wants free money again, or it's a war thing? I think with Langlands, the, the first of those is never too far from the surface. But certainly among those old legends, there was always a lot of support. And this is from Ian Heads, which I think says a lot. In a column about it, he said, I hope Rugby League has enough left in its heart after all that has gone on to listen to that call from one of its greatest. It's one of Rugby League's great attributes that it looks after its own. To this day, Men of League, which is Ron Coote's doing, great charitable causes, etc. But then you've got these guys with the entitlement of guys like Langlands, who have been given everything their whole lives and then you know, fritter it away every time and then want more. It's like yeah. a bit irritating. And that irritated some of the ARL figures who felt that they had done a lot for Langlands in the past when Langlands then accepted the offer to be one of the legends at the Anzac Day test, which Langlands spoke to Kevin Humphreys before it, who advised him to tell Neil Whittaker what he was doing. Obviously, his old teammate and friend Johnny Raper wasn't happy Artie Beetson wasn't particularly impressed either, but Langland was quick to defend himself with this statement. I'm looking after myself. The fact is the ARL haven't shown any interest in having me as part of their plan since I got back. Really, all I'm trying to do is in this <laughs> is help the game get back together. The bloody thing is falling apart <laughs> on both sides. That's up there with the Brett Kenny, where's my marketing job? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and just the, all I'm trying to do is get the game back to you. 
I'm not going to cast aspersions in this case on Chang because I'm also a dunce with finances that would take the money for sure to get out from under. But what a rather self-serving comment. <laughs> yeah. As you said, the part you can understand is he's down on his luck. He needs the money. So on that, he said, this could be a real kick on for me. If people want to criticize me, well, that's up to them. But they should realize that I haven't switched camps or dumped the ARL. I'm looking after myself. <laughs> He's always been in that camp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that, that I'm looking after myself. The fact is the ARL haven't shown any interest in having me as part of their plan since I got back. That immediately precedes what? the line, really, all I'm trying to do in this is help the game get back together. So it was Langlands, Mal Meninga, Wally Lewis, Les Johns, Steve Mortimer, Brett Kenny, Rod Reddy, Steve Rogers, and Terry Lamb. They were the legends represented who, by Langland's account, must have all been getting some money. Considering they were giving the RSL $20,000, how much money could it have really been for Langland's to talk about this as being something that could really get him going again? Well, what's funny to me is the disparity between budgeting. One moment they're incinerating $60 million in Tokyo, and the next minute they're penny-pinching on uniforms for Western Samoa. Yeah. 20000 for the RSL and 100000 for the cover band, you know? Like, it's mm. crazy. It is, but... Arbitrary. Not a lot about Super League's budget lines made sense. So maybe we'll move on to the actual game and the presentation. And I said at the start, this was the first chance to see the Australian Super League team. It was also the first chance to see the reality of their coaching system, which meant that the Australian job would change every year based on the Super League team who had finished the highest. So I guess after 1997, it would have been the coach of the Premiers would be off in the Australian job. For 1997, it went to the Super League team that finished highest on the ladder in 1996, which was John Lang's Cronulla Sharks. So he was installed as Super League coach for the year. I love that for John Lang, but I didn't know about that gimmick. It's odd. It's a strange system. And Lang talks about, you know, some of the potential advantages of losing that bias over team selections, which was a constant bugbear in the ARL. He said he'd be happy to make way. And at the end of the year, when that was going to be the case, he threw his support behind Wayne Bennett saying, I'll certainly be encouraging Wayne if he's got any doubts to take it on. I'd be happy to hand over to him. So a weird system that not everyone was happy about. Uh, One of those people was Ken Arthurson who on the coaching system says, it really is totally wrong and takes away from the great traditions in our game. I've got to say it cheapens it to a degree. What hope have the coaches of the Hunter Mariners and Adelaide Rams got of ever coaching Australia? <laughs> it's like, I, I none. Love That's that. kind of the point, you know? <laughs> but I, I love that um, it takes away from the great traditions of backroom deals to see who yeah. coaches. <laughs> <laughs> it takes away from the tradition of your adopted son, being given a rails run for 30 years. (laughs) And it's not the last time we're going to hear from Arco in this episode, but I love, this is how universally loved John Lang is. Arco went on to say, I say that with the greatest respect to Johnny Lang. I've always thought he was as good a coach as anyone and I've always liked him as a bloke. So the team itself was a real inexperienced bunch. So there were 86 international caps among the Australian team, but 84 of those had come from Glenn Lazarus, Laurie Daly, Andrew Eddinghausen, and Alan Langer. David Ferner and Wendell Saylor had both played one test each, but the 11 other players were debuting. Well, it's those players that gave it the credibility and made it more credible than the ARL test team just because they had the top tier of the best players. Yeah. Bar a couple. Yeah. And when you look at the newcomers, 
I think it's a real mixture of players whose time had come and players who wouldn't be picked in a United comp. So the debutants were David Peachy, Ken Nagus, Ryan Girdler, Darren Smith, Brad Thorne, Rodney Howe, Craig Gower, Paul Green, Julian O'Neill, Matt Adamson, and Solomon Hamono. Well, it's the same as the ARL teams. I mean, should Robbie O'Davis have played 400 tests, you know? Like- mm. Yeah, I think it shows the depth of Australian talent that you look at the Australian ARL squad, you look at this Super League squad, and you think, oh, that's a pretty decent team. You don't lose much, really, from one competition not being there, but it just looks a whole lot better when it is a United team. And I think in Super League's favour, this was the calibre of some of the players who were healthy scratches from that team. So there was no room in the side for Steve Walters, Brett Mullins, Bradley Clyde, Ricky Stewart, or Kevin Walters. I think all barring Kevy, they were all aging out. Yeah. But again, Arco wasn't happy with the team. This was his comment on the selections. I can't believe they've got the hide to call that an Australian team. There are players in that side who wouldn't make a lot of first grade sides and they call it an Australian side. Who are they trying to kid? This is a Murdoch 13, not an Australian team. It's a false team, a joke team and nothing more. <laughs> they must have got him after a couple of schooners for these quotes. Yeah. <laughs> and this is my favourite line. So far, the Super League Australian sides have been arseholed out of the semi-finals in the nines a couple of times, so things aren't looking too good. Definitely after a couple of skewies. Great term that hasn't been used in 35 years. Need it back. But it's just so delusional. I mean, he's praising the ARL teams like they're some sort of super squad. They're all thrown together from the leftovers. Yeah. When we did our episode on the retirement of Arco, we talked about these statements he was making in the press throughout 1997 and they're just very unbecoming for a figure of his stature can't say i blame him for the bitterness no but- <laughs> he was an open wound there was so much hurt and anger and bitterness that i can't blame him but he doesn't come across looking particularly good <laughs> obsessing over an australian super league team selection sold out of the semis though <laughs> So in the end, Australia won the game pretty easily, 34 to 20. So that was a passing of a credibility test for the Australian Super League team. They needed to prove that if the ARL can do it without us, we can do it without the ARL players. For International Rugby League, not so much of a pass. So now there were at least two Australian teams who could beat the best of New Zealand and also a New South Wales and Queensland team who could beat the best of New Zealand. So... A bad look for them. Can we just have a bit of a chat about the um, what I call one of the great jerseys, the Australian Super League jersey? I think it's a good jersey. I think that's about the best jersey that Super League produced. For some reason, the blue worked. It does. And when you look at the, there's a famous photo of ET and I think it's Jeff Toovey in Super League and Australian jerseys taken late in 1997, preparing for reunification of the game. The Super League jersey doesn't look out of place like it looks like an australian jersey yeah yeah i thought it was quite a classy look i had no problem with it and it's one of the very few super league jerseys i can say that of it was just the size of them that hurt them (laughs) yeah (laughs) so they got just under twenty four thousand spectators at the sfs not a bad result in the lead up david barnhill senior of the country rugby league castigated super league for scheduling the match on the same night as City Country, and he thought it was something that they would come to rue. He said, I can't understand why they'd go up against us. It's like they're cutting their own throats. (laughs) 
God bless the CRL. <laughs> a game that no one, including the players, wants, um, yeah. let alone the public. So Super League somehow managed to overcome that hurdle. And then there was a return fixture at the end of the year. So it was a very crowded schedule. So a week after the Telstra Cup Grand Final, a test between Australia and New Zealand was to be held in Auckland. This came at a time when a lot of people in the game had fatigue about rugby league and how many different competitions and games were going on. This included the players. So Gordon Tellis said of the fixture... It'll be hard to get psyched up for a game like that just a week after the grand final, win, lose or draw. After missing out earlier in the year, I've been hoping my form might be good enough to get me on the tour to England. But this test in New Zealand, I don't know about that. I agree with him, man, but the United comp did that for years. Mm. Odd try series is after the grand finals. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. exhausted from uh, insanely long club seasons. You just want a break from rugby league. And even me, like a diehard rugby league international supporter, was like, oh, God, he's... Half-assed tests. I'll tell you what, doing this research, so I've been doing the research for this chapter and the World Club Challenge chapter basically simultaneously, and seeing all that play out, it's just made me realise how hard it is to get the scheduling right. As you say, you schedule them after the grand final, everyone's ready for a bit of a break. Do it mid-year. It sounds great, and it's something we've advocated for in the past, having like a mid-season break with a rep window. Super League had that with the World Club Challenge and it didn't work for more reasons than the scheduling. But suddenly you've got these three-week periods with no footy and everyone just wants to see their club teams playing. That's a bit unfair to compare a competitive rep window with the World Club Challenge, I think, yeah, but yeah, I get your point. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to talk about the, we can't really call it a kangaroo tour because it was the Super League team, but the Super League Australian team going over for a 3 Test series against Great Britain, which Morris Lindsay quite astutely said that I think this will be the last or should be the last tour of this kind. What I'd like to see is more regular one-off fixtures where Australia would go over and kind of like a Five Nations thing and play England and Wales and Scotland or whatever, or they'd come over here and play Australia and New Zealand and maybe some Pacific tests. What all that leads to is the prioritisation of the World Cup which is something that I think everyone can get behind. If you know that every four years you've got an end-of-season competition that actually means something, the stakes are high, that's something everyone can get up for easily. Yeah. Whereas the kangaroo tour-type structure has kind of had its day. As much as you and I both love the kangaroo tours, the idea of a professional rugby league player playing a season and then going over for 30 club games and three tests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But before we get to the Kangaroo Tour, we need to focus on this game, which was actually won by New Zealand. So it, there was a growing feeling that this was their time. Graham Lowe was big in Super League magazine on talking about the fact that New Zealand have got to stop considering themselves underdogs, that they should be favourites for this game. Again, a lot of fresh talent for Australia with some players injured or otherwise unavailable for the game. So there were seven more debutants on top of the eleven from the Anzac Day game. The most significant selection for Australia was that of Brad Thorne, who was a New Zealander by birth, had played for Queensland in the Tri-Series and was now playing for Australia, which... Disgusting. It's something that you say it's disgusting. Matthew Ridge felt that triply so. This was Matthew Ridge's statement on Brad Thorne's 
selection for Australia. Guys that play for countries other than their true nationalities piss me off. Brad Thorne said, I don't want to play for New Zealand. I want to play for Australia. To me, straight away, that means, well, fuck you, pal. (laughs) (laughs) Got to agree with Ridgie as I do every time. Ridge wasn't just angry at the fact that Thorne was playing for Australia. He was angry that at the same time Thorne was talking up the prospect of him playing for the All Blacks, which was a dream that he'd always had. Well, I mean, what makes it worse, mate, besides what Ridge has just articulated, is the fact that him and Tony Carroll, they're both really good players, which New mm. Zealand could have used at yeah. the time. <laughs> yeah, totally. So on the day of the test, Ridge made sure that there was a target on Thorne's back and said, come test day, he doesn't know what's hit him. He has no idea. Every time he's lining up for the ball, I'm at the back going, give it to the fucking All Black. The boys are just bashing him out of the game. I tackle him early on in the first half, turn him on his back and say, fuck, you're kidding, mate. You, an All Black, what a fucking joke. (laughs) It's like he's some sort of enforcer. (laughs) Brad Thorne's like three times the size of him. Uh, And Brad Thorne certainly went to prove Matthew Ridge wrong in terms of him being an All Black because he became a very celebrated All Black. But I I think I agree with you that Ridge's disgust uh, has some merit to it. (laughs) You're kidding, are you? (laughs) So of the New Zealand team, I think the most notable thing is the non-selection of one player, and that is Tuera Nikau. Nikau had been out of international football for a number of years, but made himself available at the start of 1997, firstly for the Tri-Series team and then for the Anzac Day test. And when he pulled out of international football in 1994, there was a feeling among the New Zealand management that it was no big loss. He'd underperformed on the field and was a bit too much of a handful off it. It's one of the weirdest situations, this, and tragic as well. There's so much tragedy that follows Tawera Nikau's life, so we need to set that up at the start that we're going to be talking about his wife, who shortly after his playing career finished, committed suicide, and that was shortly followed by the motorcycle accident that took his leg. I'm glad you said that because, I mean, we don't want to mock her, make sure you rest, but it's one of the great feuds still, regardless. So, yeah, there is a feud involved in the fact that Tawera Nikau had retired from international football, and that is to do with Richie Blackmore. So Tawera Nikau had signed up to play for Castleford, and his coach there, Daryl Vanderveld, had said that they were looking for some more talent. Do you know anyone? Nikau had recently become teammates in New Zealand with Richie Blackmore and said to Vanderveld, oh, this kid's good. Can we get him? So Vanderveld did that. Richie Blackmore came over to England, was living with Tawera Nikau and his wife for a stage, and they soon became really close friends. So there was a brotherhood thing going between Nikau and Blackmore. And crucially, Blackmore and Tawera Nikau's wife became really close and were really good friends. That all started to change when Blackmore, you know, found love in a new girlfriend who, this is all Tawera Nikau's account, but there quickly became some tension between the two women. Nikau thought that Blackmore's girlfriend was jealous of Nikau's wife and it very quickly devolved. And one night after a match in Castleford, there was a club function where I'll read Nikau's account of it. 
We went back to our club and Judith was giving Letitia a bit of lip. I don't know why, but she was. She said something like, oh, here she comes, the black witch. Well, Letitia went off. She just erupted. Right, she said, I've had enough of your shit. And she lunged at Judith, grabbed her by the hair, dragged her down the stairs, took her outside and gave her a real pasting. Richie asked, what the hell's going on? I said, it's your bloody missus. I told you to sort her out. Now she's got a punch in the head. (laughs) I mean, should have sorted her out. And that was the start of it, and it got worse and worse from there. By the end of the season, Nikau and Blackmore weren't on speaking terms but had managed to play together in the same team. But then it really came to a head with one afternoon a local car dealer in Castleford who was also a season ticket holder knocked on the door, which isn't a problem except that the knocks were with a baseball bat. He was smashing in the door, attacking the family home. Nikau ran it outside beat him up, grabbed the baseball pat and went over to Richie Blackmore's house, which was on the same street, making matters worse, and shouting out, the next time you send someone around with a baseball bat, make sure he does a good job or you'll be getting it too. Now, this is the most insane story I've ever heard. Like, Was there any truth in this, that Richie Blackmore sent a baseball bat-wielding car dealer around to his house? I don't know Richie Blackmore's version of the story, and it should be stated that even in Tawera Nikau's version, he said that Letitia, his wife, ended up in an argument with another woman at Castleford and ended up slapping the woman across the face, and that woman was the wife of the guy who turned up at their house with a baseball bat. So it mightn't have been Blackmore-related at all? Well, it might not have been, but maybe there was some collusion or he was on his side i don't know but <laughs> now being an inverse hard man myself to go around to someone's house with a bat and then you get beat up with it it's pretty ordinary <laughs> <laughs> if you're going around to to wear a nick house you want to make <laughs> yeah, sure that yeah. you can yeah. handle the baseball bat <laughs> you want to have a new you have a rocket launcher <laughs> <laughs> so after that nick left castleford came over to the sharks and decided that he couldn't play in the same international team as Richie Blackmore. He said, I was fine to do it at club level because it's a contract, I'm paid, I can be a professional. But when it comes to the New Zealand team, you know, it feels a bit mercenary to take that attitude. He couldn't do it. So he basically said to the selectors, look, if you pick me and Blackmore's not in the team, I'll play. If Blackmore's being picked, don't pick me. And so for the next several years, they prioritised Blackmore and Tawera Nikau wasn't on the scene. If you're a Fairnicum International um, selection panel, you can't have personal feuds dictating who you're going to pick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So regardless of form, you can't be held to these ultimatums. So I think they did the right thing of saying, okay, well, we're going to consider him retired from international football. Which is a shame because he had a good end of his career, didn't he? He did. And by 1997, that situation had changed with the Super League War. And the fact that there was the Tri-Series, which wouldn't involve any English-based players. um, I think by that point, Blackmore had left Auckland and gone back to England. So he wasn't going to be selected. So Tawera said, "Okay, I'll play. Played in the Tri-Series, goes on to play in the Anzac Day Test. But we get to the end of season test and Super League was scraping the barrel for centres. So Ruben Wiki and Tira Party were both unavailable due to injury. Super League had broken their own rule that they'd only just announced that players couldn't swap teams between World Cups. So Kevin Iroh, who, after playing for New Zealand for many years, had switched to his native Cook Islands, 
and therefore shouldn't have been eligible for selection. They had no one else to pick, so they went with him. The rule that they just brought in and decided to scrap it at the first sign of being short at a position. That's embarrassing. And then with that shortage of centre talent, they made the decision to bring in Richie Blackmore. Tawera Nikau instantly pulled out, said, I'll never play in the same team as Richie Blackmore again. I've said all along and everyone knew it, including Frank Endicott, who's the New Zealand coach. I'm not going to change my mind. So it looks like the end of my international career. I'm more than disappointed. I'm pissed off. The whole thing gives me the shits. And I think the whole thing was terribly handled by Frank Endicott in particular, who picked Richie Blackmore without talking to Nikau about it or thinking that it was going to be a problem. I would suggest that he's thought, if I talk to him, he's definitely going to say no and just pull out. So I'll just do it and maybe they'll work it out. Yeah, well, that was what Nikau said. He said, Frank accused me of having a memory loss, but it wasn't me who was suffering from amnesia. He stuffed up and just forgot about it. He thought he could be the Messiah and mend the feud, but there was no chance of that. So a mistake on Frank Endicott's part. If you want Frank Endicott's version of this story, you're going to have to ask him yourself. I tracked down his biography, which was the most mind-numbingly boring, completely devoid of any controversy, <laughs> driest. So typical rugby league book then. <laughs> well, no, because none of the good stuff was in it at all. I think of the Blackmore thing, all he said was, in 1997, Richie Blackmore came back into the team. Like That was it. Like No mention of... <laughs> uh, but with Blackmore and without Nick out, New Zealand won the test, which was actually the first test match that Matthew Ridge and many of his countrymen had actually won against Australia. So a big achievement for New Zealand, who were legitimate winners, just much better than Australia on the night. So that was very cool. I mean, how much you put down to that is the spite of the thorn thing. Yeah, I think it helps. And the fact is Ridge was injured for the Anzac Day test, and I think that was a big loss. They needed that inspirational figure who was also the biggest niggler in the game to help them to get over the top of the Aussies. But that test match was a precursor to the Australian series at Great Britain. And this was the first cut-down kangaroo tour. So the days of playing, you know, meaningless club games and being overseas for three months, they were gone. It was basically go in, play three tests and get home. The tour was different in other ways too, with Steve Mascord noting that what would Warriors pass who spent anything up to an entire winter playing hard and drinking hard in the bleak north of England, make of a team which is barred from imbibing on planes, plays only three games, and for much of this week has been grounded at its hotel on the outskirts of London, an hour from the bright lights? I mean, it's all very romantic uh, in prose, but I mean, do we really need our professional athletes drinking hard? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that statement, it's all very romantic, and it all seems really romantic. Then you read any of the books from the guys from the 50s and 60s, and it's always, <laughs> we were at this awful hotel in Ilkley, we had to burn the hotel room furniture <laughs> to keep warm. I love that so much, burning the furniture. <laughs> <laughs> and not everyone was happy with the cut-down tour. Laurie Daly said that he really liked the long tours and wished they'd come back, which is an appeal to nostalgia and a holiday rather than any footballing <laughs> reasons at all. But that's what I love about Loz, just his like, sheer love for the game, the boys, the, you know, yep. the journos, everything. You know, Just count me in, I'm in. Six months. <laughs> and it was going to be a different Australian side again with many players out due to injury, 
Alfie Langer had to withdraw from the team. Ricky Stewart had to as well, which that was basically the end of it for Ricky Stewart. So any chance of him adding to his tally of representative games beyond 1994 was basically snuffed out at that point. Nobody's rep career was more affected by Super League, I don't think. Mm. That paved the way for Craig Gower to take the job at halfback, which allowed Steve Walters to get an international reprieve. It gave Brett Kamali a chance to get on the plane. So it was an exciting time for Australian Rugby League when you had this new talent emerging. And I'd say of the squad as a whole, there are a few players who became legends and a few players who had a moment, a brief moment in time. So the squad was Lockyer, Nagus, Mullins, Saylor, Eddinghausen, Renoff, Girdler, Russell Richardson, Daly, Kamali, Darren Smith, Bradley Clyde, Matt Adamson, Gordon Tallis, Craig Greenhill, Webke, Jason Stevens, Brad Thorne, Robbie Kearns, Craig Gower, and Steve Walters. Yeah, so it's only really Russell Richardson that didn't kick on. Mm. Uh, from the Great Britain perspective, Andy Goodway was their new coach with an assistant, Sean McRae, who was uh, having his third international posting in four years after assisting New Zealand in the 1995 World Cup. I mean, typically the English um, legends were against having a foreigner in the coaching staff, and I was against it because it made him unavailable for me for injury news via by, by television. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame because Telstra was sponsoring Super League. For the World Club Challenge, they were handing out phone cards to all the players, so surely some arrangement could have been set up. <laughs> the other notable thing about the great britain squad was the wrangling over some of the players who had signed with the arl so jason robinson in particular wasn't allowed to play in the game he ended up having to negotiate his contract with the arl and then wigan bought him out so he was allowed to play in the test one player who wasn't so lucky was harvey howard at western suburbs so how did that work with Robertson? Like, I mean, it was the biggest loss for British rugby league. There's no one more respected by Australian fans than Jason Robertson at the time. Like, he was undeniably the best winger in the world. But why was he allowed to play and others weren't? It's weird. It was just because they bought out his contract. So, But he signed with the ARL. He signed with the ARL. His ARL deal wasn't to kick in at club level, I think, until ah. you know, 98 or even later. Okay. So. What it meant was that he wasn't allowed to play for the Great Britain Super League team and he was expected to make himself available for ARL International. So he ended up playing in the rest of the world side in the 1997 that we will be talking about soon. But that was the extent of what the ARL got from him. So a huge waste of money in signing up English talent that had club contracts that would stop them actually playing in the ARL. So in the end, he played. Harvey Howard wasn't so lucky. He was playing for West at the time, and he hadn't signed with the ARL or Super League, which meant that the ARL didn't really have the right to stop him from playing the test, but his club team, Western Suburbs, did. And I think this is pretty pathetic, really. So Martin Bullock, the CEO at Western Suburbs, said, Our major concern was that Harvey might be injured, and we've just invested very heavily in him. And so they barred him from playing. I mean, these days it's sort of more accepted, more money, clubs have more power type thing. But back then, that was like a big slap in the face to a player saying you can't represent your country. Especially when there is no way an ARL club would refuse to release a player if it was an ARL test. Mm. So I thought that was pretty poor. In the end, the game went ahead. 
The first test at Wembley, which wasn't met with the enthusiasm that the English management would have liked. One Super League official saying, we're obviously not expecting a full house at Wembley, but we think there'll be close to 50,000 there. Why aren't you expecting a full house, given that you're tasked with uh, providing that? And that's your entire yeah. role. Well, obviously not expecting it. Yeah. Say we're not expecting a full house. Don't put the obviously in there. <laughs> the team had an appearance on the National Lottery to try to boost enthusiasm in the game. In the end, they got 41,000 to the game. Not a terrible result. The subsequent tests at Old Trafford and in Leeds got good turnout. So they got over 120,000 for the three games. Decent result. But if the Great Britain public weren't getting behind the series in a way that the management would have liked, they had some unexpected support from Australia with a letter appearing in the Rugby League Express reading as follows. The members of Aussies for the ARL, now more than 40,000 strong and dedicated to the retention of our traditional clubs, wish you, Super League Great Britain, success in the game against the scab trader pseudo-league pretend Aussies. We, the real Australian Rugby League supporters, hope you soundly flog these second-rate pretenders. How does 60 nil sound? Signed, Barb? No, and the interesting thing is that I think Barb did her best to disassociate herself from the letter. So someone had gone rogue to write that letter because John Brady, the ARL's PR officer, said, I've just been phoned by a representative of Aussies for the ARL who has disassociated herself from the letter. Well, it's got to be a Nova Castron that wrote that, 100%. <laughs> the sheer pettiness of it, the bitterness it's got Northern England and Newcastle, Australia written all over it. <laughs> I love the disassociation between the scab trader Australian team <laughs> and the morally righteous Super League England team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, just sit it out. <laughs> On a side note, 40,000 members is like, you know, that's impressive. Yeah, I don't know how many of those were paid up members. <laughs> So Australia broke the Wembley curse. They'd, of course, lost the first test there in the 90 and 94 kangaroo tours. Won fairly easily thanks to a Laurie Daly masterclass, one of the most impressive individual performances seen by an Australian in England. Martin Sadler wrote that the performance was even more impressive than Reg Gasnier in 1963 at Wembley. Wow. And I love John Lang's assessment on the performance. I remember Adrian McGregor writing the forward in Wally Lewis's book said that he had the ability of all great leaders, that he could deliver the coup de grace himself. That's what Laurie can do. It's all right to be a leader and be able to have them going for you, but if there's slashing to be done, he can slash. That's what he showed there today. We had them under pressure and he's gone bang. I think the similarities between Laurie and Wally are um, almost underrated. Like They're both mm. cut from the same cloth, aren't they? Yeah, I think it's just the temperament probably puts a lot of people off. Yeah. It was also a great debut performance by Gordon Tallis, who made his presence known. He went from hero to villain, though, in the second test, which was won by Great Britain, and Gordon Tallis was sin-binned, had been placed on report, and blamed himself for the loss. Tallis's quote was, I was a disgrace. I was on a high last week, and I just took that into the game, and it didn't work. 
I should have just knuckled down and played footy. They scored every single point off me. People say no one person can win a game, but I lost a game for my country today. I got headbutted, I got baited, and if I can't take a smack in the mouth for my country, I shouldn't be playing the game. He really is a real man's man in terms of what's morally right to him. Mm, Yeah. So that left the series squared at one all with a lot riding on the decider. This had the chance to be England's first series victory against Australia since 1970, their first home series win since 1959. I'm actually glad they didn't win, mate, because it would have been like the 97 grand final and the Super League grand final, you know, half a squad type. Yeah. Asterixes. And that talk was in the press during the series. So David Middleton said that in terms of previous records, there's nothing riding on this series. I do love the Great Britain team's ability to win at least one test of every series and take it to the wire. Yeah. They're always outnumbered and outgunned, and they always manage to come back and yeah. get up for one win. Mm-hmm. And that they did, but any thought of them overcoming Australia and winning that first series was over 45 seconds into the third test when Laurie Daly set up Ken Nagus for a try and Australia went on their way to wrap up the series. So perhaps a predictable result, not a lot to say about the series as a whole. One thing that stood out was the refereeing controversy. So Phil Houston, who was a New Zealand referee who had spent most of the season refereeing Super League reserve grade, was selected as the referee for the test, disliked on both sides for his performance, and by the end of the series had refereed more test matches than he had first grade games. Well, it's an absolute insane system to, to insist on neutral refs. So you've got to have some guy who's not yep. up to it come fly in and, and just sort of uh, yep. flounder in the environment. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Like, it barely works in sports where there's 100 countries to pick from, yeah. let alone a sport where there's two major competitions in the world and they happen to be playing each other. So the lasting legacy of the series is that weighing up of what is it? People on the ARL saying, well, it's not a test match. The asteriskization of the Australian caps. You had Laurie Daly saying, well, to me, it's still a kangaroo tour. I'm still playing for the Ashes, which just as a side note, I always hated the term the Ashes used for rugby league. Yeah, so dumb. <laughs> it was the Ashes of hotel furniture. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I've heard like Shane Webke and other players talk about they hate the fact that they've got these asterisks against their Queensland caps because of Super League or their Australian caps. I understand that, but the thing to put it into perspective for me is that it's only the Australian caps that have that asterisk. If you played a test for New Zealand in 1995, it's the same body, it's the same team as the team that represented New Zealand in 96 and 97. The same is true with Great Britain. It's just the fact that Australia broke away and had competing teams. That wasn't true anywhere else. So the asterisks are necessary. It doesn't work, though, because they've got records about in the test, uh, New Zealand versus Australian Super League. um, He ran for 180 metres against um, these players, and then it doesn't show up on the other position's stats. So it doesn't work. That is a complication. But I don't see a way around the asterisk. I haven't got solutions, don't get me wrong, but but critique. Yeah, as with everything in this era, it's just a mess. It complicates legacies. It makes things very difficult to weigh up, but it's 
what we've been dealt and we've just got to yeah. work around it. Well, it, after all that uh, ranting there, what they've done is probably the best they could have come up with. Yeah, I can't see a better alternative. And speaking of better alternatives, you couldn't say that if you were looking for that in international football, you were going to be going to the ARL for that. The fact they even tried is amazing. Yeah, and we'll get into what they did. And we've talked about the match against the Fijian village in 1996. It's the question of whether doing nothing would have ultimately been better than what they did. But I understand the bind they were in to produce international football. Like, if nothing else, they'd made a promise to the players who had signed that you will still get to play for Australia. Like, that pathway is still there for you. I think they were bound, hands were tied, rocks in hard places everywhere, and what they did was the best they could muster, and it was pathetic, but they tried their best. Yeah, and trying his best was Neil Whittaker, who I think some of the spin he gave on international football in 1997, the editors of Super League magazine would have looked at that and said, oh, that's a bit on the nose. This was his quote in Big League. Players are getting a fair chance to find form and stake their claims to representative selections next month. From city country to the only genuine rugby league state of origin and the world champion kangaroos against the rest of the world, these are the matches that will provide genuine highlights during the year. And at every opportunity, he used that term, the world champions. In a later quote, he said, We're in for an exciting representative season, whatever happens, and we have the one ingredient any international contest must have, the world champions. (laughs) Yeah, I would argue a more important ingredient is someone for the world champions to play against. (laughs) If it wasn't for the fact it was like the leftover dregs rest of the world team, I would have been right up for the concept because like going back to the old um, football cards that showed the 88, I think it was, rest of the world team, I was like so enamored with that concept. Oh, but get them all together. Yeah. All the best players. (laughs) It'd be so cool. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that, across multiple sports always sounds really good. Yeah. But it wasn't just the rest of the world. The ARL was still actively trying to court New Zealand. They could sense the destabilisation there. And as Arco and Quayle had done in 1996, Whittaker's administration were keen to capitalise and see if they could come to an arrangement with New Zealand. If not to steal them back to the ARL, then at least to get the New Zealand team playing against the ARL team. So Whittaker said, there's the opportunity for them to establish a neutral position and play ARL teams as well. There's a chance for New Zealand to enjoy a vibrant league and maintain a neutral stand. I don't think the New Zealand rugby league community should suffer the divisions that have had to be endured in Australia. So at every turn, they were trying to make this test against the Australian ARL team happen. So a full New Zealand team consisting of ARL aligned New Zealanders, as well as their Super League players, It was revised at several points during the season. At each turn, Super League came out and knocked it on the head and said, look, it's just not possible. Gerald Ryan at the New Zealand Rugby League was out in the press talking about the fact that he wanted to make it happen. He said, at the end of the day, we want to do what's best for Australia and New Zealand, and most importantly, what's best for Rugby League. Talking about their preferred position was a United Australian team against a United New Zealand team, but... If that couldn't be achieved, then maybe it was possible that they could play the ARL team. As I said, Super League were always quick to shut it down. John Rebo saying, that is not possible. It just can't happen. While there are two competitions, we can't do it. Which I think it's totally right that it was not feasible. But I I love Rebo's comment on it. 
Why would you want to do that? They are the opposition. I read with great interest the other day that the ARL's former chairman wanted to kick the Warriors out of the competition. (laughs) Just use the fact that you're playing separate competitions and the New Zealand Rugby League has binding contracts with Super League to say that it can't happen. You don't have to talk about, well, Arco said that the Warriors should be kicked out. (laughs) You can't shake the ex-player Rugby League man. Yeah. (laughs) Vindictiveness when he wants to be in high finance. (laughs) And so this idea was still floating around in late September. So Joe Ryan mentioned it again. The door has always been open for some kind of match against the Australians. And it's something we'd dearly love to do if it's allowed to go ahead. This is late September. There's already (laughs) like a, a Great Britain tour. There's already a game against Super League. Most of the ARL competition have had their Mad Monday and there's no train-on squad. Like, Let me ask you this. Like, you made the point that they've got binding contracts with Super League, the New Zealand Rugby League. Why is this guy playing footsie against that with the ARL? So it's so weird that it happens so often. And Rebecca Wilson at some point had to come out and say, there were some New Zealand League board members in favour of the ARL's proposal, but the majority were against it because of their ties with Super League and have sent a letter to the ARL explaining that position. I wonder if that letter was actually written by the New Zealand Rugby League or whether it was just signed by them after being faxed over from Super League head office. <laughs> oh, God. I think the latter, mate. <laughs> so that was a no-go and Australia were left with the rest of the world match. Australia versus the best international talent they could muster from what they were left with. It started well with Mal Reilly and Bob Fulton as the coaches. Technically, it should have been called the rest of the rest of the world. Yeah. (laughs) The Australian team was fairly good. Tim Brasher, Robbie O'Davis, Terry Hill, Paul McGregor, Brett Dallas, Brad Fittler, Jeff Tovey, Mark Carroll, Andrew Johns, Paul Harrigan, Steve Menzies, Gary Larson, Billy Moore... Mark Coyne, John Simon, Nick Hossef, Dean Pay. That's another good squad, though. I mean, guys that some guys that probably wouldn't have got a shot if it was a United comp, but it deserved a shot regardless. Yeah, yeah. So of those 17, John Simon was the only player who had that as his only international. The rest had all played either before or would go on to play for the Australian team proper. Rest of the world was a different story. Mal Reilly said that they had the pick of over 50 players and he said it's a very strong and competitive side. Brad Fittler also supported that, said he was very impressed with the team they'd put together, which sounds great. It's not a huge vote of confidence that out of those 50 players, they had to go with Willie McLean, who had played two first grade appearances at that point, one off the bench and one in the starting side for North Sydney. Uh, would go on to play a further four matches in his first grade career. What was his nationality? He was a New Zealander. Right. The rest of the team was made up by Gary Connolly, uh, who was like Jason Robinson, had signed with the ARL despite playing in England. Marcus Bai, Phil Howlett, Craig Innes, Jason Robinson, Tom O'Reilly, Adrian Lamb, Jason Lowry, Lee Jackson, Terry Hermanson, Darren Ramaker, Jared McCracken, Andrew Tangadatoa, uh, with a bench of Craig Smith, Harvey Howard, Chris Nahi, and Willie McLean. I knew there was a problem when I saw McCracken in the back row. I thought, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had players, Tom O'Reilly, who was a Papua New Guinean representative. He'd played eight first-grade matches. Chris Nahi, who was from New Zealand, had played 16 first-grade matches. Neither of them, along with Willie McLean, went on with it. 
Marcus Bai had only played eight matches at that point, and he certainly went on with it. So there's some successes there. Can we just uh, take a moment to acknowledge the role of super fixer for the ARL of Adrian Lamb? Halfback, the most notoriously hard spot yeah. to fill when you're, when you're scraping for players to get a quality half to come in from New Guinea to play for Queensland and fill that hole. Yeah, yeah. Win you a series, fill this hole with the rest of the world. That is the one saving grace, isn't it? So in the end, Australia won the game 28-8, to eight, respectable. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that the rest of the world team had one of the best halfbacks in the game playing for them. Do you think their jersey had any uh, impact on their um, oh. team spirit? <laughs> All right, so I'm not sure if you can... I, I went to YouTube. This game is available in full on YouTube. I wouldn't recommend it as being necessary viewing to watch the whole thing. But if you have not seen the rest of the world jersey, go and have a look. I mean, I've said this about some of the Super League jerseys in the past, so I don't want to be accused of hyperbole, but it is legitimately the worst jersey I've ever seen a a professional (laughs) team wear. It reminds me, it's a cross between the London Harlequins style. Yeah, very Harlequins, yeah. Combined with Bam Bam Bigelow's wrestling outfit from the late 80s, (laughs) if everyone knows that. Again, it's not a reference I get, but a sizable proportion of our our listeners will know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> it's not good, is the... Uh... <laughs> so 15,000 people at Suncorp, not a bad result considering... I can't believe they got 15. Yeah, an unmemorable game. We don't need to talk about it. The Telegraph's write-up for once isn't pro Super League spin, but just the obvious truth. I'll read this out. If for no other reason a league compromise and resultant single competition would at least do away with the fast being visited upon league fans this coming Friday night at Suncorp Stadium. Australia versus the rest of the world. Sounds grandiose, doesn't it? Pity about the facts. Try an ARL representative side versus the nomads or other nationalities. To suggest there are some bolters is pretty close to the mark and doesn't do much for the ARL version of the national jumper. All true, but I'll give the ARL a pass because put yourself in their position, what would you do? Yeah. And then, as we said, the concept sounds good and it's something that I would always get excited about. And then I'd hear about these other nationalities games that took place in England in the 50s. And then even in the the 2000s, there was the that Exiles game they used to play. I never yeah. watched it, but th- that always sounded cool to me and I never really gave it much thought. Then you had Harry Bath, who'd played in many of those other nationalities match, When he was asked about the rest of the world, he had this to say. The games weren't hits in England. The crowds were lukewarm and most of the players weren't interested. The games that mattered to us were Wembley and the championship. But because we were professionals, we went ahead with them. Even back then, I mean, yeah, I think it's been proven with the American major sports all-star games, the fast as they are, when there's no um, genuine care for the cause, it's not going to apply. Yeah. So it doesn't work. The ARL in a bind, what can they do? All they could do after that was to push for a united Australian team with compromised talks in the wind and a growing sense that the game would be together in 1998. There was a push from some sections within the ARL of taking the first steps toward that by having a united Australian team heading over to England. Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, if there's two things that, pushed everybody i think towards compromise it's got to be this rest of the world yeah uh, low point and mm. world club challenge which is next episode <laughs> yeah <laughs> so 
Bozo, the Australian ARL coach, was keen. John Lang, more measured, but at the same time, he said, if there was a compromise and the Super League authority said for the good of the game, everyone is to be considered, I'd certainly be happy for the coaching position to be reviewed. I wouldn't make any decision that could stand in the way of compromise. Everyone has to give a bit for compromise to happen. Super League management, however, made clear that it was not on the table. There was no chance of it happening. I love that there are very legitimate and reasonable reasons for not going ahead with this. It makes perfect sense that it'd be great if we were together, but we're not. So until we are, we can't be doing this. But all the statements about it, I'm just going to read a few of them. This was John Rebo. We asked some of our players to make the ultimate sacrifice and not play for their countries. Now the shoe's on the other foot. You can't just turn around and say, let's make available ARL New Zealand players and ARL Australian players. At the end of the day, that would mean some Super League players have to miss out. I could never do that to our players. Glenn Lazarus. We had to sit out the 1995 World Cup and the ARL blokes should get a taste of what it's like this year. (laughs) That's a rugby league player. Roy Simmons. These blokes missed State of Origin in the past and no one took them to the World Cup. They're the ones who had shit put on them. (laughs) And then That's a true rugby league player. (laughs) And then from the ARL side of things, Brad Fittler. They had to miss out in 95, so I'd understand it if they went it alone. There are so many reasonable reasons to not have a United team, but any player who gets in the press, even John Rebo, can only talk about the petty reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind that we've deposited the GDP of three small countries into this mess. Um... Yeah. <laughs> so if that couldn't happen, we'd already been denied a Super Bowl. What about the next best thing? This was Ray Price's idea. What I would have liked to have seen in the current spirit of compromise is a test between the two camps, Super League Australia versus Australia. Now, wouldn't that be a hoot? No, it wouldn't. (laughs) I left it out of our Tri-Series episode, but Ray Price had the same proposal for State of Origin with New South Wales playing the Super League New South Wales team, which I couldn't think of two games which would more inflame the situation and make everyone (laughs) more depressed about rugby league than they already were. I mean, I always ask the question, did we not learn anything from Australia versus Australia A? And the answer is always no, we didn't. Yeah. And that's basically where it ended. So the compromise team didn't happen. New Zealand didn't jump ship and play Australia. What you had was two international calendars that left a lot to be desired and probably played a significant part to making sure that the situation was resolved for 1998. Uh, But that is where this episode ends. We will be back in our next chapter with the World Club Challenge, which is a very complimentary piece when we're looking at rugby league's place internationally. So I'm really looking forward to that one. I haven't heard of the results of that. Was it a success or...? (laughs) Uh, No spoilers. You're going to have to tune in to the next chapter to hear that. But, yeah, some great stuff coming ahead. (laughs) Hope you've enjoyed this one, and we will speak to you soon. Bye-bye.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.